Thank you, Aaron and Jessica, for that word. You know, I saw a, a quote from Scotty Smith who said, blessed are you pastors who don't tell your congregation today who to vote for, but you tell them who to worship. And I will tell you who to worship, the Christ who holds us fast. I talked to someone here today, I won't embarrass her and say who it is, but she's lost her daughter and her husband uh, this, this very year. When you complain about 2020, let's consider how bad it's been for some people, a lot worse than it has been for me. And no matter what you're going through in this crazy year, he will hold you fast. Jesus is a rock who never leaves us nor forsakes us, and all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So thank you for that beautiful reminder. You've been singing in this church, what, 20 years now? Did you come here your freshman year at Belmont? Wow, Jessica and I were at Belmont at the same time, graduated the same time from Belmont, and she's been here ever since that time. I have not, so that's, that's amazing, beautiful. And how about Aaron on piano? That guy can shred on a piano. That's beautiful, Aaron, thank you. We're on the home stretch now in our series on the book of Acts. We've been walking through this beautiful story of the birth of the church and how the church became this, you know, started as this ragtag group of disciples that ended up becoming an unstoppable force for advancing the kingdom, not only in Jerusalem, but in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. With the last few chapters in Acts, I was telling Andy, I'm, I, it's, it's hard to preach these last few chapters because it's really just these amazing little narratives, little vignettes about the, uh, the life of the Apostle Paul and how he's so determined to just give himself away for the sake of the gospel. He's just pouring out his life in really, it seems like more increasing measure, an increasing desperation as he is just relentless in pursuing this singular passion to see the church become this global body of Christ. And the, you know, the same zeal, the same passion, the, the same you know, power that, that he had as a persecutor of the church when he was Saul of Tarsus, he brings that same energy and that same focus and that same passion and, and zeal in now promoting the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I read a story recently by Lou Little. Some of you will recognize the name Lou Little. He was a legendary football coach. He started out at Georgetown. I don't think he started out there, but one of the, the schools he was at was Georgetown University. He was there in the 1920s. It was a very different game back then in the 1920s. And he tells a story about a kid on his squad who was pretty average. Uh, he didn't get a lot of playing time. and. Uh, the coach liked him anyway, though. Coach Little really appreciated this little guy because every time his parents would come to visit, he would walk with his father arm in arm across the campus, just holding each other's arm, and, and he would talk with his dad and chat it up as they walked across campus, and coach thought that was neat. And then one day, this kid got a phone call from his mother with the, the sad news that his dad had died suddenly from a heart attack, and that the kid was devastated. He went home for the, the services, and then... He came back to campus three days later and he told Coach Little, hey coach, I really would like to start this Saturday against Fordham. And the coach said, um, why, you know, why is that? He said, I think my dad would really have wanted that. He said, okay son, I'll, I'll start you, but just you know, 
a play or two, four of them was really good. So just maybe first couple plays, okay? And the kid said, okay, thanks. And he started the kid, true to his word. He, he let him play, but he never took the kid out because for 60 minutes, this kid ran and, and blocked and, and tackled like he never had before. And the, the coach, after the game, pulled the kid aside and said, what in the world got into you? You were incredible out there today. What, what happened? He said, well, you see, coach, the, you saw my dad walking arm in arm with me across campus. Coach said, yeah. He said, my dad was totally blind. He was completely blind. And today's the first day he got to see me play. Isn't that powerful? To think about that this kid's desire was just to please his dad, who was now unhindered by his earthly uh, prohibitions of sight. He now could see his son play football. All the kid wanted to do was put a smile on the face of his father. That's how Paul was. All Paul cared about was putting a smile on the face of his heavenly father who had redeemed him and brought him from, d delivered him from the law of sin and death, from his own pride and anger and legalism. Paul had expended every breath, every ounce of energy within him in order to please his father. That's what we're seeing in these last few chapters. You know, his friends keep trying to be reasonable and talk him out of going to these dangerous places like Jerusalem, which was a hotbed of Christian persecution. And they knew that it would be extremely risky for him to go back to th this place where it all began in Jerusalem because Christianity was under great persecution there. But Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit. Remember last week, we, we talked about how he said, I'm compelled by the Spirit. I have to go and I want to deliver this offering that I've been collecting from all the Gentile churches in Asia and Greece and Macedonia. I want to bring this offering to the mother church, which is struggling big time. And of course, Jerusalem has special significance for Paul because he's a Jew. He's a Hebrew among Hebrews, as he says in Philippians 3. He has a, a heart and a burden for God's original covenant people that are his people too. This is his faith tradition, his faith family in many ways still. And he has this incredible passion to see the Jewish nation come to know the fulfillment of their entire faith and all the Hebrew scriptures that have been pointing to the Mashiach, the, the Messiah, the anointed one who was appointed by God to save the people of God and bring God's kingdom in a powerful way. So once again, Paul shows up in the great city of Jerusalem, a city that he loved, but a city that despised him, even the Christians there. Look at verses 17 to 20 in Acts chapter 21. When we had come, this is Luke talking, Dr. Luke is writing, he's traveling with Paul. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters, the uh, Adelphoi, right, the, the body of Christ there, received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Things were going great. The Jerusalem church was so happy to hear about all these things that God had done in, in the, the world of the Gentiles. 
And, you know, it was probably a pretty intimidating situation for Paul. Paul's very learned, he's very scholarly, but the way the Jerusalem church was set up was it modeled like the Jewish leaders and the, the way that the Jewish temple was structured. They probably, know, we know from other sources that there were 70 elders in the church, like the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. So he has to appear before these 70 men. And, it, you know, Paul just says, I'm going to focus on two things. First, I'm going to tell them all the amazing things that God is doing around the world to bring about the body of Christ to prosper. He tells them about uh, how he got run out of town in Ephesus because of the socioeconomic impact of the gospel on the idol makers there. He tells them about the power of the gospel to break down strongholds in Athens and in Corinth. He tells them about poor Eutychus who fell asleep on that warm night and fell out of the third floor window and died and was revived by the Holy Spirit in Troas. And he's got representatives with him from these regions who are bringing these offerings to Jerusalem. He's got uh, Trophimus from Asia. He's got Secondus from Thessalonica. And then the second thing is not actually recorded here, but we know from the context that he delivered the offering that he had been collecting in all these churches. And these Jewish believers, Paul was worried that, that they wouldn't receive it. We don't want your dirty Gentile money. You keep that. We're fine. But they did. They accepted it. And he hoped that this offering would build a bridge between the Jewish and Gentile Christians, that all are one. There is no Jew or Greek in Christ, but all are one. And so they're encouraged. They receive the gift. In verse 20, the first part says, all glorified God, praise God. Everything's going great. But then the elders give Paul a heads up. These 70 men say, people in the church here, they're not big fans of yours. Look at verses 20 to 22. When they heard it, they glorified God. Then they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Thousands of Jewish converts, praise God. They're all zealous for the law. What? And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What, is, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. What then is to be done? Remember, all this should have been settled at the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15. But the reputation that Paul had was that he wanted to get rid of all the Old Testament, just throw it away. All the prohibitions and the law, Moses, prophets, get rid of all that. And these thousands of Jewish converts are still zealous about the law. Not sure that's a good thing. So the gossip about this Paul guy was that he wanted to squash all the Jewishness out of the church. Good thing gossip's not a problem for churches these days, right? The Jerusalem church, it's really, Woodmont is the best I've seen about gossip, by the way. Keep it up. The Jerusalem church really didn't like Paul because they clung so tightly to their Jewishness. Their identity was bound up in the fact that they were Hebrews more than the fact that they were children of God through Jesus and had been born again into a living hope. 
When the text says here that they were still zealous for the law, it means they couldn't let go of that feeling of moral superiority of we are really better than everybody else because we follow the rules. We, we you know, pay the right prices for the sacrificial system and we go through all the rituals appropriately. Therefore, we're better than everybody else. When I was in college, I attended a, a local church. I won't say which one. Uh, with some friends of mine, and I was a, a young college, you guys look great, you college students who are here today are all, I got blazers on and stuff, I mean, you guys look great, okay, I, I had, I remember khaki pants on and a polo shirt, I tucked it in, and I don't think I owned dress shoes, maybe, I'm not sure if I just didn't want to wear them, so I wore flip-flops uh, to church, and, you know, I, I thought it was fine, and uh, I, I remember people looking at me in the lobby a little funny, like, this guy's got flip-flops on here in church, doesn't he know better? And one guy actually said, sarcastically, I think, to me, son, can I buy you a pair of real shoes so you can go to church? It stung. I mean, it really, I kind of laughed it off, but it, it kind of stung at that time. This wasn't the kind of church where people wear flip-flops. Let me just say, if you want to wear flip-flops here, please go ahead. I believe firmly no one here will judge you for wearing flip-flops, okay, or shorts or Whatever else. humble has got shorts on back there. We got Deacon who wore shorts. It's great. Do it. It's cold now. Probably not an issue, but come as you are, okay? Come as you are. The mother church in Jerusalem had become like that church. We follow the law here. We don't do the Gentile things here. They've become this kind of prejudiced, kind of arrogant, compromising church. They compromise the truth of the gospel. And it didn't fully embrace the gospel's power to bring us all to that level ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus. So the elders came up with an idea for Paul that was really highly questionable, but totally predictable too. It's not surprising. They kind of came up with a, a litmus test for him to prove his Jewishness. Look at verses 23 to 25. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, a Nazarite vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, that's kind of cheap, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. The, the church in Jerusalem, remember, had already decided at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that the Gentile believers were under no obligation to do this kind of stuff. Remember that? They only had to do three things. James came up with this compromise, and they sent a letter, and everybody said, that's, that's good. Stay away from anything to do with idols. Remember that? Then the second one was don't uh, have any kind of sexual immorality of any kind. And then three was don't eat meat that has been strangled or still has blood in it. Basically, order your steaks well done in order to keep the peace with your hardcore Jewish brothers and sisters. But this extra burden now about taking this Nazarite vow that the elders are suggesting Paul do, this is beyond that. It seems like a classic case of religious politicking. Not that that happens anymore. A little quid pro quo. Paul, we have graciously received your foreign Gentile offering. Now it's your turn to prove how Jewish you are. Go to the temple, 
pay for these other four church members who were also taking a Nazarite vow. It was a pledge uh, by, you know, devout Jews. It was kind of like fasting ritual where they would uh, abstain from meat and wine and they would not cut their hair for 30 days after they shaved their heads. It would really show everyone that Paul was still really Jewish. I think the whole idea probably seemed sketchy to Paul at first, right? But I think he submitted himself to the authority of the elders in that church. He believed these are the elders, they're telling me to do it, I'm gonna submit myself under their authority and do it. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. He paid their way into this Nazarite vow. Now, remember the whole idea of uh, religious authorities making money in Jerusalem was abhorrent to Jesus and to Paul, right? What was Paul doing here? Is he selling out to the religious leaders in Jerusalem? Did he lose his courage, his boldness to follow the gospel above all else? No, I think he, he really was following his own spiritual convictions. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, for though I'm free from all, I can do whatever I want under grace, I've made myself a servant to all that I might, more, be, might with more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That's exactly what's happening here. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, I'm not really under the law, but I said, yes, I'm, I will uh, submit myself to the Old Testament law that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. I'll eat meat rare as long as there's no you know, hardcore Jews around, I'll do that. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. It's not that we're outside, we can do whatever we want, but it's that we're under a new kind of law, a law of grace and love that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That's what we see happening here. We know that, again, Paul was adamantly opposed to this religious economy of Jerusalem, though. He didn't want to help further this kind of corrupt system that promised that if you paid for the proper sacrifices and kept all the rules and, and followed the details of the rituals, then you could be somehow made right with God. It's the same guy, remember, who wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and the turning to a different gospel. Remember the Judaizers were coming into Galatia and saying, hey, you guys need to circumcise your kids. And he's like, no, not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They were saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for your sins. Just accept that and do this. And then you can be right with God. That's not the gospel. The gospel can't be Jesus plus anything. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He's not messing around. The gospel of grace alone, salvation by grace alone, by faith in Christ alone. Then later in Galatians 5, he said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you see the tension here? It sure sounds like he's submitting again to a yoke of slavery. We have to be really discerning to know the difference when to submit to those who are under the law and when to say, we're not doing that. It's a, a really delicate balance. We have gospel freedom now. And no amount of temple sacrifices, no amount of showing up in church. College students, it's great that you're here today. It doesn't make you right with God. You don't get a free pass this week because you went to church. Maybe you brought your tithe check today. Great, that doesn't make you any holier. That doesn't put you right with God. No amount of religion and ritual can ever bring us close to God the Father. Only Jesus does that. So Paul's walking this thin line in Jerusalem. Why? because he loves the Jewish nation of which he is a part. These are the original covenant people of God. It's a holy nation unto God himself, a, a people for his own pleasure and possession, God's own beloved family. Paul ached to see the covenant people one, Israel, become united with the covenant people two, the church brought together in Christ with no dividing wall of hostility between them. Unity, oneness in and among all of God's people was a key focus of so much of Paul's writings. I remember growing up at a, a Baptist church in Franklin. My parents worked for uh, the, the Baptist Sunday School Board. They were denominational workers. I spent my summers at Baptist conference centers at Ridgecrest and Glorietta. How many of y'all been there? I know Carlton Carter was at Glorietta when he heard uh, Bill Sherman preach in the 1960s, and he called the search committee at Woodmont and said, you gotta get this guy, Bill Sherman. And, uh, that was at Glorietta, New Mexico. I'm as Baptist as they come. And when I was a kid, I remember thinking my friends who were Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic might as well be Buddhist. <laughs> like they might as well be so far outside of anything that had to do with Jesus. It wasn't until I went to Beeson Divinity School at Samford University, Sam, not Stan, uh, and I was taught that, that as an interdenominational evangelical seminary, that we were brothers and sisters with all of those who had called upon the name of Jesus and had died to themselves and been raised to new life in Christ. I was learning that the church is so much bigger than Baptist or Church of Christ or Methodist or Presbyterians or whatever. Unity remains a serious problem in our churches today black and white churches that are so deeply segregated. It's difficult for a lot of churches today to have both members and leaders who vote Republican and those who vote Democrat in the same church. I think we have both, and I'm happy about that. I heard about one church that was all set to merge with another little church in their community in order to be a more effective congregation and reach more people in their town. And just as they were about to, to vote to merge, they, they called it all off because of one thing. One church, when they said the Lord's Prayer, prayed, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The other church 
prayed, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And they couldn't agree on which one to use. Isn't that sad? Jesus knew how important unity was for the church, for the body of Christ. Remember the high priestly prayer in, in uh, John 17? He's in the upper room with his disciples and he's praying for us. He's praying for those who would become part of his body. And he asked God the Father to make us one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. That's, that's us. Through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe. That's the key. Why should we be one? So we can be bigger and, and have cooler programs and have basketball for our kids? No, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. What? We have the glory of Christ, the glory of God, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world, again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, loved the world. God so loved the world, even as you loved me. That's such a powerful passage. Paul had this vision for a unified body of Christ that is advancing together arm in arm for the sake of the gospel across every nation, tribe, and tongue. I often think about how great the, the Protestant Reformation was. You know, we got the five solas that came out of the Reformation. You know, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as scripture alone has dictated and shown us all to the glory of God alone. That's beautiful stuff. I love that stuff. But I'm also saddened that the church used to be the church. Really, until 1,000, there was a great schism with East and West, right? The church was just the church. If you were a Christian, you belonged to the church. And then in 1500, we, we, we went past the point of ever going back. It fractured into so many different divisions that, that we feel like we're not even on the same team sometimes. That's a shame. Three key takeaways here. I just want to point out three things that I noticed in this text. And again, it's kind of tricky because if I had written this, I would have made it real black and white. Here's the, the, the point of application. The Bible's not always clear like that. Is Paul right? Is he wrong to do this? I don't know. But I do know that the Lord has inspired this text and is teaching us something through it. So here's three things that I see. Even when we're motivated by good causes, we have to be so careful to avoid bad judgment. Even when our hearts are motivated by doing the right thing, we sometimes make compromises that go too far in order to do the right thing. Does that make sense? If you're motivated by something good, be careful that you hold fast to what is true and right and good in the midst of that. Second, we can be pressured towards questionable action by the sins of others. You know what I would have liked to have seen? The Jerusalem church defend Paul and say, no, we agreed to these three things only for Gentile believers. You guys back off, Paul. But they didn't do that. Instead, they told him to be more Jewish and put more things on him. 
If they had defended him, that pressure that Paul felt to be more Jewish would never have come in the first place. We need to check the motivations of those around us who want us to do certain things and determine if they're acting sinfully or not, if we should submit to them or not. The third thing is if we truly have a passion for God and for winning all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to him, that we must be willing to run the risk of making these bold decisions like Paul did. He didn't take a bold risk. A lot of people never risk anything for God. We're just comfortable to sit back and, you know, just go through life kind of following the American dream and just staying in our lane. Sure, we don't want the storms of sin, but neither, neither do we want the tempest that often accompany a life that is surrendered to Christ. We're, not, uh, we're afraid to get caught up in those storms that come by following Jesus. You know, I'm often tempted myself to just aim low and just keep things even, but I'm, I'm reminded that we're supposed to pray boldly and act boldly. The great missionary, William Carey, who we claim is a Baptist, again, he kind of made a Baptist conversion on his way over. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's what Paul did here. Expect great things from God and let's attempt great things for God. So the situation in Jerusalem uh, devolves quickly. Let's just close by reading the rest of this text here. Look at verses 27 to 31. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Even though he shows up there to worship, <laughs> they say he doesn't like this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Not true, by the way, but false accusations. For they had, and how racist, too. They brought Greeks into the temple. We don't want Greeks here. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed, I assume, that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the, tri the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The whole city was in confusion. The, the situation was mayhem, but God was in control, always working behind the scenes to, for his glory and for our good, and he delivered Paul. These, this crowd starts beating Paul, and a, a, a cohort of, a legion of soldiers comes out of the, the fortress there in the temple, Roman soldiers, and they rescue Paul, really, by grabbing him and pulling him back into the uh, citadel there. And then Paul asked the Roman tribune for an opportunity to address the crowd. Let's skip to verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins, the Sicarios in, in Greek? That, that was an actual thing. There was an Egyptian Jew who led this big revolt and people were stabbing people. That wasn't Paul. Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. 
And when the, the, the tribune had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush, and he addressed them in their native heart language, Hebrew. Paul had been severely beaten by the crowd. The, the Roman soldiers rushed in to rescue him, and yet he still possesses a burning passion to stand up bruised and beaten and bleeding in front of his fellow Jews to share the gospel with them. Nothing would deter him, knowing that he probably would be killed for doing so. What are we willing to risk for the people that God has called us to? Will we follow the example of Paul, no matter what happens to us, we're gonna pour ourselves out for the sake of Christ? Or will we be content to just stay in our lane and just kind of follow the status quo? Let's expect great things from God. Let's attempt great things for God. Always walking that delicate balance of what's true and right and good and seeking to win all, seeking to be all things to all people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we can gather. Uh, we thank you that no one has gotten sick here so far that we know of, God. We know that's only by your grace that defies all the odds. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that tells us that for Paul to live was Christ and to die was gain, that our lives are not our own, but we have been bought at a great price. Help us now to live boldly in this world. Give us a heart for seeing unity among your people and seeking to reach all nations for your name. Because we know that the kingdom of God is the best way to live, not only for us, but for all peoples. Help us to do so in a gracious, respectful, loving way. But help us to have a burning zeal to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see every nation, every tribe, every tongue come to know that you are Lord of all. We thank you for saving us by your grace. Help us to hold out that same grace now to others, even at great personal cost, as Paul did. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. We're going to sing, take my life, lead me, Lord. Sorry, it's a different song. <laughs> Same idea. If today, if you need to respond in your heart, if you have felt the, the, the prick of the Holy Spirit in your heart saying, it's time for you to step up. Maybe you've never surrendered to Christ in the first place and given your, your commitment to him. Maybe you need to do that today. Maybe you want to join Woodmont. You're ready and you're saying, I'm in. I want to be a part of what's going on here. I want to be a member. We believe in church membership here as a family of committed members who are advancing the same cause together. If you want to just be a part of what God's doing in Sierra Leone, come see Marcus or Calvin out here in this north foyer after the service. I'm going to be at the south foyer today if you want to just uh, stop and say hey or, or tell me about some decision that you need to make. Maybe you have some burden of sin that you're ready to lay it down. Don't leave this place today until you've honestly dealt with the living God of all creation who is here now to meet with us. Let's stand and sing, Take My Life, Lead Me, Lord.